The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11. We're in the midst of this series on sanctification this summer. We're in the middle of uh, this topic. We are between Romans 11 and 12, and so we're taking some time to deal with this issue of personal holiness and this issue of how we are to make progress in Christ's likeness and how we are to be a holy people and how it is that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so we're taking some time over the summer to, to deal with a, a variety of facets of this topic of progressive sanctification and we're doing this because there's been a lot of confusion over this doctrine. I, I find that this is one of the most confused doctrines in the church today. And it deals with the issue of how we are to have victory over sinful temptations and how we're to mortify sin and how we're to be a holy people and how we're to live in obedience to the Lord. And there's a lot of people who are confused about this. I don't think this is an issue we can afford to be confused about. And the reason for that is because this is where we live. This is the moment we live in between our justification and between our glorification. And we've got to get this right. We can't be confused about how to be people who are being sanctified in this stage between our justification and our glorification. So we're trying to clear up some of this confusion. And one of the issues that repeatedly comes up in this confusion is the relationship between faith and feelings in progressive sanctification. How is it that we are to go about being holy? Is this something that should be driven by faith or is this something that should be driven by feelings? How do we handle this? It's an important issue that we need to address because if we're all honest, we'll admit that at times, maybe more often than not, our feelings and our faith disagree, right? You all need to go north and south on that because you're in the same camp as I am. All of us have had those moments where we just don't feel like doing what we're supposed to do according to God's Word. At times, God, what God says and what we feel are not in agreement. They're not in alignment. And so what do we do when faith and feelings disagree? What do we do when faith and feelings are in conflict with one another? The traditional answer to that question is, Ben, you trust and obey. The traditional answer through many centuries of the church has been you obey the Lord despite not feeling like it. You walk by faith rather than by your emotions. And this was understood because there was an awareness of objective truth. And the awareness of the fact that God's objective word, His objective revelation was much more and is much more reliable than any emotional experience that we would ever have. And so for centuries, believers have understood the value of faith in God's Word over their subjective feelings. That's not the case so much anymore. And what we're seeing today is a trend in a different direction. We are seeing a, a shift away from this rational basis of objective truth to this more sensual one, to this more feelings-based one, this more aesthetic kind of approach to the Christian life. 
And I think what we're seeing today in the church is more of a trend, a trajectory towards personal experience being the guide rather than objective realities. And it's interesting to me that I think the church is in many ways just paralleling what we're seeing in the secular culture. You know what postmodernism is. Postmodernism is the belief that there is no objective truth, that all truth is relative, that whatever you think is true is true, but whatever someone else thinks might be true for them because there is no standard of truth. All truth is relative. There's no objective realities. And so whatever you think is true is true. That's postmodernism, and that whole idea has crept into the church. So rather than talking about faith as the primary means of our sanctification, now we're hearing things about hungering for beauty and contemplating grace and delighting in God and basking in the gospel and considering the cross and reflecting on what Christ has done and remembering your justification and beholding God's beauty. These emotion-oriented terms are, are now the terms that are being thrown around in circles related to sanctification. I see this happening in the hyper-grace movement. I see this happening in the gospel-centered movement. And I, and I, I don't want to malign them in any way because I think in many cases they're faithful to the Word of God and there's a reality that, that faith is what is justifying us and has justified us, faith alone. And yet, when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification, I'm hearing more and more of these kinds of terms than I am trust and obey. I think some of this has been a good corrective. I've said this before in the last few weeks. I, I think much of this has been good in the sense that we do not want to succumb to a passionless Christianity where uh, we just kind of go through the motions. There's this externalism that we just jump through the hoops and, and just do it because we're supposed to out of a, a duty without any heart for God. That's cold, heartless, heartless orthodoxy. That's pharisaical. That's what Christ came to confront. He's not honored by that. He doesn't want us to worship Him with our lips when our heart is far from Him. So some of this corrective has been good, but let's admit that if we swing the pendulum too far the other way, we're going to go to emotionalism. And there's a danger in reducing sanctification to the presence or the absence of emotions, as if your sanctification is defined by whether you feel like doing something or don't feel like doing something. We need to talk about faith in justification because it is faith alone that justifies us. And yet, when we talk about sanctification, we need to talk about the fact that it is a faith that is not alone that sanctifies us. In other words, you can rest in your faith in justification, but the faith that sanctifies you will actually promote your pursuing holiness. It will actually drive you to work. It will promote in you a duty. It will promote in you a diligence to obey and to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So my fear is that we're swinging the pendulum way the other way. And I would ask you this morning, are, are you a believer who walks with the Lord by faith or are you a Christian who walks with the Lord by your feelings? And I want to prove to you and I want to submit to you this morning that it is by faith that we are sanctified. It is by faith by which we are made more like Christ. It is by faith in the objective Word of God and the unchanging nature and character of who God is that is the means of our sanctification. 
Faith is the act of entrusting ourselves to the truth that God has spoken. Faith is what is involved in resting on what God has promised because of who He is. And I believe that faith is essential to our sanctification. Not to say that emotions are not part of it. Not to say that God has not made us to be emotional creatures. We are. We are made in His image. That, that's what it means to be made in the image of God. Is we have emotions. That's all part of being a, a person made in the image of God. And yet, we have to realize that it is faith that helps us in our sanctification. And I think we see this in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. And how about Peter? 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 6, says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's sanctifying faith. A faith that believes in God and who he is, even though we cannot see him. This is how Paul lived. Galatians 2.20, you know the verse, well, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That, I believe, is the essence of true sanctification. We walk by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. We don't see to believe, we believe so that we can see. That's the essence of spiritual maturity. The godly believer is the one who believes and is able to see with spiritual eyes. And that kind of faith, I believe, is essential for our sanctification. Let me read you a quote, I think, that really kind of captures this. It says this, There are other responsibilities and realities in the Christian life, but none are as crucial as faith. We should concern ourselves with loving, obeying, desiring, finding joy in God, and beholding God. These are indispensable obligations and are helpful ways to think of our relationship with the Lord. However, we cannot perform any of these works apart from believing. How can we love Christ if we do not at first accept what the Bible says about Him? How can we obey Him if we don't trust His commands? How can we desire Him if we are not fully persuaded of His eternal beauty? How can we find joy in Him without entrusting ourselves to His sovereign care? And how can we behold Him apart from the eyes of faith? Without faith, we cannot fulfill a single duty, let alone the many blessings of spiritual growth, end quote. Beloved, it's by faith that we walk this Christian life. And it is faith that must drive our sanctification even when our feelings are not there. And to convince you of that, I want to take you to Hebrews 11. As you know it very well, this is the hall of faith. This is the heroes of the faith. This is the honor roll of the Old Testament. These are the Old Testament saints who, who walked by faith. And this chapter, above all chapters in the Bible, tell us and illustrate for us what it means to live by faith. And I want to show you these verses. I want to take you through kind of just a survey of this 
whole chapter because it shows that virtually all obedience in the Old Testament saints was due to the instrumentality of their faith, not their emotions, not their feelings, not their experiences. It's by faith that they chose to live and were thereby sanctified. So I want to help you. I want to help you this morning because it's very possible that some of you here this morning are living by your emotions. You're living by your feelings, you're living by your experiences, and you chase one experience after the other, and your walk with the Lord parallels your emotions. As that soars, then you think everything is good, and when that plummets, then things struggle. And so your spiritual life looks like a roller coaster as it parallels your emotions. That's not how God wants us to live. God wants us to live by faith. And so I want to show you this morning two instructions from this chapter that I think will help cement our conviction that sanctification is primarily by faith rather than by emotions. Two, two instructions, two things I think that will help us understand this. First, number one, here's the first one, is we need to understand that faith, the faith that promotes our sanctification. We need to understand the faith that promotes our sanctification. By that, I mean we need to comprehend the fact that those who will be sanctified, those who make progress in spiritual life and spiritual growth are those who view life through the lens of faith and walk by faith, not by sight. If you look at the end of chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews began to address the issue of faith. He says, starting in verse 37 of chapter 10, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteousness, righteousness one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So the writer of Hebrews, in dealing with these warning passages, addresses the issue of faith, and then he comes to chapter 11, verse 1, and gives us that most famous, clear, concise definition of faith. He says in verse 1 of chapter 11, now, faith is, you can underline this, starless, highlight this. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hope for and the conviction of things not seen. You want to know what faith is? You want to know the kind of faith that needs to define you and I as believers? It's right there. It is the kind of faith that is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Two parallel phrases, two nearly identical phrases that he uses to describe and define for us what faith is. First, it is the assurance, literally the substance of things hoped for, meaning faith is the solid confidence in the future promises of God. Faith has at its very core an unseen reality. Faith places its trust in that unseen reality, God and His Word and who He is, even if those promises can't be seen. That's what faith is, it's substance of the things hoped for. What is it also? It's the conviction of things not seen. 
Faith is convinced of unseen realities. Faith is convinced of unseen hopes. It's not based on what can be seen or tasted or sampled or touched or any other empirical evidence that you want to bring to bear upon your situation. Faith lives in the moment, understanding that there are unseen hopes and realities, and faith places its trust in those because God is the one who has given us those things. In other words, we could say it this way, faith persists when feelings fade. Faith persists when feelings fade. And I want you to notice that in this definition of faith, there is no reference to feelings. There's no reference to emotions. There's no reference to experiences. His point here in this definition is that faith is rooted in spiritual assurance and spiritual conviction. It's rooted in that. Faith grounds our hope in the promises of God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, not the things sensed or felt or experienced. Those don't come into play in faith. Faith is a confident reality, a confidence in who God is. And faith involves believing God when nothing else in life feels right or makes sense. Do you understand that? Some of you are here this morning and there are things in your life that don't make sense. There are things that you, you're trying to make sense out of, you're trying to figure out, you're trying to wrap your mind around. There are things going on in your life right now that don't compute with you, and you've tried to analyze it and diagnose it and try and figure out what is going on here. And frankly, there is no earthly answer. None. I know that's the case because there's things in my life where I go, God, what is this? And how does this square with what I'm thinking? And I can't wrap my mind around it. And yet faith says, Lord, I trust you and I believe in the assurance of things that I can't see, no matter what I'm feeling at this moment. Friends, that's the heart of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is the ability of getting to the point where you can look past your emotions and past your experiences to the all-sufficient God and His Word. You need to understand that feelings are subjective. Emotions kind of come and go. Emotions are, are, are fleeting. They're temporary. They, they're not constant. They're not guaranteed. They're not a reliable guide. They're not a trustworthy guide for the certain circumstances that you find yourself in. And when we rely on our emotions, we end up turning inward and we look to ourselves and we try and find within ourselves the ground of our of faith. And that's not going to happen because faith has to be grounded in something immovable. Faith that is not grounded in something that's immovable is going to be shifting sand and it's going to be a false hope and it's going to betray you and it's going to change and it's going to morph. So what, what is unchangeable? What is objective? What is the, the sure foundation, the solid mooring that we need to have? It's God. It's His Word. It's His character. It's who He is. True faith is grounded in that. True faith is always connected to the truth. You can see it in verse 3. Look down in Hebrews 11, verse 3. Look what the writer says. He says, by faith. We understand what? By faith we comprehend. By faith we know something to be true. What? That the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. 
by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. You say, how do you, how do you know all this exists? Because God is the one who tells us that He exists, that He made it. God in His Word, and very clear, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, tell us exactly how this world came into existence. It wasn't by evolution. It wasn't by theistic creation or theistic evolution. It was by, what does it say? Verse 3, the Word of God. And I'll tell you, for me personally, that's ultimately what turned me from a 22-year-old pre-med science major who believed in evolution to creationism. This. It's by faith. Will I understand that or not? Will I accept that or not? Will I choose to believe that God is the one who has created all these things because I wasn't there and I think you weren't there? So how do we know how this world came into existence? By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. What's the point? God's Word is trustworthy. God's Word is reliable. God's Word is more certain than anything in this world. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So the Scriptures... God himself, the very word of God, is more trustworthy, more true, more reliable than any experience, any emotion that you will ever have. So, it doesn't mean that at certain times you won't feel things. Of course you're going to feel things. God has made us emotional creatures. Of course that's going to be true. But a right understanding of sanctification means that we will choose to live by the Word of God. We will choose to live by faith in who God is rather than by our emotions and rather than by our feelings. And isn't this what Christ did? Do you remember the garden? Do you remember as Christ was in the garden struggling in that moment, feeling the weight of what was before him, feeling the, the, the incredible weight of what was uh, about to face him as he was about to bear the wrath of God against sin, on the one hand wanting to do God's will, on the one hand committing to do God's will, on the other hand feeling the incredible weight of the thought of bearing the wrath of God. What did he do? In that moment, he knew God's ways and he knew God's word were trustworthy and he acted on what he knew. He acted on what he understood to be true in that moment rather than fleeting thoughts and emotions that could have led him astray. He believed God and his word and he placed his confidence in that. How about on the cross? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For you have been called to this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Listen to this. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What did Christ do as he's about to go to the cross, he's about to bear the weight of God's wrath against sin? He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He said, God, you know what's right, you know what's true, I trust you, I'm going to place my confidence in 
God over my emotions. Say, why is this so important? Look down at chapter 11, verse 6. I want you to notice just what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Why is this so important? Why is faith and sanctification so critical? Because without it, you cannot and will not please God. If you're a person who's driven by your emotions and you live your spiritual life on the basis of your emotions and your affections and your experiences, if that's what defines you and drives you, it is impossible, he says, to please God. Why? Because, look at verse 6, he who comes to God must believe that he is. Believe what? Believe that God is, is what? Is trustworthy, is reliable, is faithful, is a good God, is a faithful God, is a sovereign God, is a God who loves his people, is a God who will not forsake his people. You must believe God is, and that kind of faith is what pleases God, and that's the kind of faith that will sanctify you. Not only that, you must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Where does blessing come? Where does joy come? Where does gladness come from? Where, do, where does contentment come from? And where does the ultimate affirmation that you are looking for come from? It's not going to come from anything in this world. No emotional experience you have, no, no kind of fleeting emotional reality that you're seeking is going to give you the reward that you're looking for. Where's it going to come from? From God, who is the rewarder of those who seek Him. So that's the kind of faith that pleases God. And that's the kind of faith that's absolutely critical to our sanctification. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now listen, it is really easy to do the Christian life when your faith and your feelings line up. That's easy. You just do what feels good. You just obey because it feels right. You just love God because He feels near to you. You walk with Him because He feels close to you. you. You walk with God because good things happen to you. That's easy. The question comes, what happens when your emotions and your feelings are screaming at you to head in 180 degrees away from what God's Word says? What do you do then? What do you do in those moments when, when your feelings veer to the left and God's Word goes to the right? What do you do then? Hebrews chapter 11 says you walk by faith. You take God at His word. You preach to yourself. Isn't that what Lloyd-Jones says? You don't listen to yourself. You preach to yourself about who God is and what He's like and who His character is and what His nature is and the sufficiency and the reality and the truthfulness of His word. That's what becomes the realities that you live by in that moment. So Hebrews 11 verse 1, just the definition of faith teaches us that we need to choose with our wills to believe God in His word rather than our emotions and feelings. And I'll tell you, there's, there's been times in our life in Julie and I's marriage where this has been tested. Nine years of wanting kids, there, there were many, many times where we didn't feel like trusting the Lord. I, I remember a time where we said, forget praying, forget trusting the Lord, it doesn't work, that the emotions were raw and real. Six years of the ups and downs of adoption, many times our emotions and feelings were telling us that God wasn't in that. 
20 years of ministry have been challenging and hard at times and don't feel like being steadfast and movable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, what do you do in those moments? We didn't always handle it rightly, but we always came back to where else do we go? We have to bank upon God. We have to bank upon His Word. We have to trust Him, and God has always honored that commitment, always, and He will do the same in your life. He will honor your commitment. It's not always easy, and the choice to believe something contrary to your feelings is not natural. I wish I could tell you since then I've always chosen to live by faith rather than my emotions, and that's not been true. It's a struggle. It's hard. There's been times I haven't wanted to battle lustful thoughts. There's been times where I haven't felt like giving cheerfully to the Lord. There's times where I haven't felt like going to church, which is a problem when you're a pastor. What do you do? What do you do in those moments? Hebrews 11 says you trust. You believe God, who He is. You allow the Word of God and the character of God and the nature of God to superimpose itself upon and over your emotions and that that is the kind of faith that is absolutely essential to your sanctification and it is that kind of faith that produces unshakable hope in God and anvil-hard convictions from the Word of God. Jerry Ragg describing this, says this. He says, faith, not sight, summarizes the entire Christian life. Walking by faith, or walking by sight is natural and easy. It takes little work to live without faith. Man intuitively lives according to his sense rather than God's promises. It is hard not to let feelings and experiences and circumstances determine your perspective of reality when you can see them so clearly. Sight naturally becomes our guide when we are passive about our faith, but when we are actively pursuing faith, the truth regulates our lives. By faith, we hold on to the certainty that God, who transcends our feelings and experiences and circumstances, is the one who determines reality. His truth is true, even when it doesn't feel right. His will is ultimate, even when our experiences seem determinative. His hand is mighty, even when our circumstances seem omnipotent. His character is holy, even when our emotions betray us. His promises are final, even when our despair seems permanent. Realities such as these can only be grasped by faith. When we walk by this kind of faith, the sanctifying grace of God's truth is unleashed in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. Is that you? Can it be said of you this morning that faith in God, faith in His Word, faith in His character is unleashing the Spirit's power and sanctification in your life? Is that true? That's what's going to give you victory over sin. That's what's going to give you victory over despair. That's what's going to give you joy in the midst of gloom. That's what's going to give you victory over the the, the desires of the flesh. And that's what's going to enable you to mortify sin in your life when your eyes are fixed on the objective reality of who God is in His Word. That's why I don't think it's enough to just behold Christ That's good. 
That's why I don't think it's enough just to meditate on the gospel and have affection for Christ and bask in God's grace and cling to Christ and delight in the gospel, this aesthetic terminology that we're hearing so prevalent today. That's good. I'm for a, a, a passionate love for Christ. But what happens when life hits and your emotions don't line up with who God says He is? Maturity comes in the Christian life as we believe what God says more than we believe what we see. You understand that? Maturity in the Christian life comes as you believe what God says more than you believe what you can see or feel or emotively embrace. That's why if you're here this morning and you are not seeing spiritual growth in your life, you can trace that spiritual growth back to unbelief. You can trace it back to an unbelief in who God is and His his Word and His nature, and you can trace it back to some form of unbelief in your heart. And so I ask you this morning, are you walking by faith or are you walking by sight and your feelings? You say, Todd, is this really how it works? I mean, is it really that simple? Point number two. Not only do we need to understand the faith that promotes our sanctification, we need to, number two, imitate the faith that characterizes the godly. We need to imitate the faith that characterizes the godly. Say, how how do you know this is how it works? How do you know that the Christian life is to be lived this way? How do you know that it's faith that promotes sanctification? How, How do you know that this is the way that we're called to live? Because just read the rest of Hebrews chapter 11. The whole chapter is a litany of people who lived by faith rather than by their emotions. And the Old Testament saints listed in this chapter are commended for it. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. For by it the men of old gained approval. Men and women of old, many Old Testament saints who lived under the Old Covenant, they lived by faith and God was pleased and God was, was affirming them in their faith and they are blessed and they are forever listed in this chapter as illustrations of what it means to live by faith. And so I want to go through every one of these verses. I'm just kidding. I want to list for you some of these, and I want you just to see some of the illustrations from this chapter of of what it means to live by faith. And I want you to notice the key phrase that keeps occurring over and over and over in this chapter. Look at verse 3, by faith. Verse 4, by faith, Abel. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch. Verse uh, 6, without faith. Verse 7, by faith, Noah. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham. uh, Verse 17, by faith, Abraham. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob. 22, by faith, Joseph. 23, by faith, Moses. You see the pattern? They live by faith. They walked by faith. They took God at His word. So let's look at a few of these. Look at verse 7. How about Noah? Start with him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. 
by faith, Noah prepared an ark. Now, we know the story. You're aware of it. But let, let the reality of this sink in for a moment. God comes to you and says, Noah, I want you to build a boat. A big boat. A boat that is going to house you and your family because I'm going to flood the earth with water. Now stop right there. Noah may have never seen an ocean. Noah didn't know how to build a boat. Noah had never seen a boat this size. Oh, and Noah had never seen rain. Noah, go build a boat. What would you do? Uh, God, you got to find somebody else. That's not going to work for me. Find an excuse? No, what did Noah do? He dropped everything and went and built a boat. For 120 years, he committed himself to this singular command, and he built a boat exactly how God told him to do it. Look at verse 7. It says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not seen. He couldn't see any of this. He had no notion, no ability to perceive anything that was about to take place. Yet, in reverence, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. He did exactly what God told him to do. In the face of sneers, in the face of people making fun of him, he did it. How about Abraham? Look down in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, look at this, look at this, not knowing where he was going. You ever do that? Um, let's go. Where? I don't know. That's what he did. God says, Abraham, I want you to go. I'm preparing a place for you. I'm going to give it to you as an inheritance, and I want you to go. Even though you've never been there, you've never seen it, you need to go anyway. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a, a group of people that are going to be so numerous that they're going to be like the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore. Would you have gone to a place you had no idea where you were going? Look at verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place. He went. I wonder if his emotions at that moment were screaming, uh, no, this doesn't feel right. I don't know where we're going. He went. Verse 9. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in the foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He went in faith, and he lived in faith, and he believed in a promise that would not be fulfilled until many generations after him had lived. He went, and he actually, listen, he never saw what God promised him. Verse 11, Sarah did the same thing. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead as that. What a great description of Abraham. He's pretty much dead anyway. As many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is on the seashore. 
Look what it says in verse 11. She considered him faithful who had promised. Hundred-year-old people don't have kids. And yet, even though she initially struggled with it, she came to believe in him who was faithful. And look at this, verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What did faith mean to these people? It meant not receiving the things God promised them. Do you realize that? It meant not receiving the things God promised them this side of heaven. They never saw the fulfillment of what God promised them. Added to that, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. God says to Abraham, go offer up your son. Go kill your only son, the one through whom these promises are going to come. Go sacrifice him to me. And he did by faith. How about Moses? Skip down to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Did you catch that? Moses could have been satisfied with anything he wanted in Egypt. He was raised there initially. He was raised in the palace, and he could have kept living the good life. He could have had everything that he wanted. He could have been and was enticed with everything most people only dream about. But he didn't. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than all that he could have had in Egypt. Why? Look down at verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Look at this. For he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Where was Moses' hope? It wasn't in the present. It wasn't in all that this world has to offer. It wasn't in the, the passing riches and the pleasures of this world. Moses looked beyond that and seeing him who is unseen. He entrusted himself to God in faith. Just keep reading. Look at the end, towards the end, verse 32. We don't have time to go through all this. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts, deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. 
What do you think Daniel felt in the lion's den? What do you think those who were about to be sawn in two felt in that moment? I'll tell you what they're commended for. They're commended for walking by faith, not by sight. And so I want you to see the priority of sanctification, faith in sanctification, faith over your feelings in sanctification. So what do you do? What do you do when God says something and you don't feel like doing it? I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't become a sensuous Christian. Let me close with this. I want you to listen to R.C. Sproul. What is a sensuous Christian? The sensuous Christian is one who lives by his feelings rather than through his understanding of the Word of God. The sensuous Christian cannot be moved to service, prayer, or study unless he feels like it. His Christian life is only as effective as the intensity of present feelings. When he experiences spiritual euphoria, he's a whirlwind of godly activity. When he is depressed, he is a spiritual incompetent. He constantly seeks new and fresh spiritual experiences and uses them to determine the Word of God. His inner feelings become the ultimate test of truth. The sensuous Christian goes his merry way until he encounters the pain of life that is not so merry and he folds. He usually ends up embracing a kind of relational theology where personal relationships and experiences take precedence over the Word of God. If the Scripture calls us to action that may jeopardize a personal relationship, then the Scriptures must be compromised. The highest law of the sensuous Christian is that bad feelings must be avoided at all cost, end quote. That's not what we want to be like. We don't want our inner feelings to become the ultimate test of truth. So what do you do? What do you do when you don't feel like going to church? Here's what you do. You acknowledge that your heart is not where it should be. You acknowledge that your heart is not the place that you want it to be, where God wants it to be, because you know the scriptures that tell about being with God's people and the importance of gathering together with the saints and not forsaking the assembly. So what do you do when you don't feel like it? You acknowledge it to the Lord. Lord, my heart's not there. You repent of that sin and you go by faith and obey the Lord. And I guarantee you what will happen is eventually your heart's going to change in the process and eventually your heart's going to come along in those emotions and eventually as you continue to choose obedience, God will bless. So, what are you walking by? Faith or by sight? May we be those whose lives are sanctified, not by our emotions, but by faith in God and His Word. Father, we need these reminders because we confess, Lord, too often we fall prey to our own emotions. And so we thank you for the reminder this morning that we need to live by faith. May we do so. Not cold, heartless orthodoxy, not passionless Christianity, but truly walking by faith in who you are and the truthfulness of your word. Strengthen us to be those kind of people for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, 
delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.